The Long Beach Unified School District is excited to launch a series of podcasts hosted by newly appointed superintendent, Dr. Jill Baker, focusing on the power of story and the connections we make through sharing our own individual journey with one another. For the first episode, she sits down with Baba the Storyteller. Baba the Storyteller has been a professional speaker since 1994 and is one of the few recognized U.S.-born practitioners of the ancient West African storytelling craft known as Jalia. He has received numerous awards over the years for his work as a folklorist, traditional harpist, storyteller, community activist, and volunteer. We are so grateful that you are joining us for this episode and hope that you enjoy the show. Well, Baba, what an honor. What an honor to be here with you today during my first week on the job as superintendent of schools. And um, I think, as you and I have said many times before, a conversation like this is like right. it, really like 20 years. It's been a while. When, when did you, wait a minute, we met when you were a principal, right? Yes. When, yep. How long ago was that? So I think we met about 20 years ago. I had been a teacher in the district. I came in as a teacher in the district right out of college, um, newly married, moved into the Long Beach community and, and just fell in love with the community um, and was a teacher at Smith Elementary. Smith. Yeah, Smith Elementary. But it was a different school that we met at where you were principal. Yes. Right? What school was that? Yeah, on the west side of Long Beach, Garfield Elementary. Garfield. Yeah. Okay. A school, when I got there, this amazing community, um, it was 1,200 kids at the time. It's now, just to give you a perspective, it's now around 600 students, um, wow. but a bustling place with beautiful families and and a staff that I just loved working with. And we met while well, you were on a stage with, with students. I think you were doing some work for the Arts Council at that time. I was doing quite a bit of work. It wasn't called the Arts Council back then. Back then it was called... Corporation for the Arts. Mm. It transitioned to the Arts Council uh, some years later. But what I was doing at that point was we were actually touring schools. We had a grant to tour schools. And we were having them do folk folklore and and presentations to like family evenings and things like that. It was it was a good time. Mm-hmm. Good time. I remember just um I was probably timid as an adult at that time in a way uh, and remember watching the students just circling around you and dancing and talking and I think you were sharing instruments and um, That's right. before I knew it, the staff who was also present were just a part of what you were doing too. That's is- a, that's a, it's a part of the craft. Um, a lot of times here in the West, we look at what those sort of things as entertainment, but anyone who... It, Anyone who knows the depth of storytelling understands what was actually going on. And I think that's why our relationship developed, because I think you saw beyond the entertaining Mm -hmm. aspects of what was going on and the children gravitating toward the story, toward the moment. um, It created an environment conducive to them being able to uh, accept and learn and grow. So it it looks like entertainment to most people. Mm but it's so much more. Yeah, I've been so struck with the power of story and watching you over time, but really just thinking about when we listen as people, how much there is to hear about children's stories and about adults' stories. Um, And so talk a little bit about what you bring out in your work. I'm going to have you talk about storytelling at some point, but talk about just the things that you bring out among children and adults when you use the power of story with them? I'm going to, 
I think I would like to take credit for what I do, but I actually practice an, practice an ancient craft out of West Africa, of a storytelling craft, an oral historian's craft. So one of the things I always open up with is making sure that everyone who's present understands that I'm not really a storyteller, I'm a griot. I am a griot. But in the English language, storytelling is the only word that even comes close. So I think what storytelling brings out, what these moments of intimacy through shared uh, experience bring out, is um, I, I would call it an, an equilibrium of an equilibrium of balance between personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with storytelling, there, we don't have a defense mechanism against storytelling, which is why no matter how old a person is, they're engaged wholly. And with this type of storytelling that I do, the objective ultimately is to uh, have that person who is listening or who is with you uh, grow a little bit. Mm-hmm in themselves, to show them the potential of who they are so that they can push a little harder or move a little forward. So that's the way I use stories. And a lot of times when I've gone to schools, everyone invites me for the students, and then it ends up being something that the adults love just as much. Yeah, I've Uh, um, heard you talk about, and I've thought a lot about story in its relationship to building empathy. Um, and I think specifically in my own growth as a human over the last years, um, just that ability to hear and to listen and to grow an understanding of somebody else's lived experience. Um, and I can think of many conversations and people who I've sat with, and even those who I don't know personally, but in that listening to come to an understanding of a different lived experience than maybe I've had, and how much power that has in our own personal evolution. So yeah. once you know another human being's story intimately, you can't see them as an other. Once, once you engage another human being and you actually engaged in a level of focused listening where you feel what they say, then that alters your relationship to that human being. And that is a type of thing that we need to have happen more. We need a lot more listening, focused listening, And one of the things I teach when I'm working with the um, students or when I'm working with some of the teacher professional development is in some of the cultures, the indigenous cultures, how you say something, because their tonal languages are more important than what you say. And it's an aspect of us here who live in the West. We understand this, but we haven't given it as much focus, right? Because all of us have had relationships where we've asked someone, hey, how are you? And they will answer, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know, but we don't take the literal translation of their words, I'm fine. We go after them and say, wait a minute, what's really going on? Mm-hmm. Because how they said the words was more important to us. So listening is a skill. And if you haven't consciously sought to develop it, you don't have it. So I, I think that's one of the things that we shared is this journey toward becoming better listeners. Mm-hmm. I have a personal experience relative to what you just said that I'll just tell a little story um, that answering the question, how are you and saying fine. So I was, I'm a cancer survivor Mm -hmm. and in the period between diagnosis and treatment, um, I was walking the earth doing what I could. 
um, going to work and doing the jobs, you know, that were before me. And I remember finally having kind of this moment where I stopped just saying, I'm fine. And not only did I stop saying it for myself, I also started to see people differently that were sitting around me. And I stopped just asking, how are you? And just allowing fine to be the answer because I was answering fine mm-hmm. when I wasn't fine. Mm-hmm. And so I love that, just um, what you just said. About well, there's, a the level question. Of, there's a level of vulnerability in even exploring that level of questioning for yourself, that level of self-reflection where, where you say, like, for example, you said, I'm not just going to ask, how are you? And you took your own experience. You internalized it. That level of self-reflection is what is needed for us to turn a lot of these corners that we're facing. In order to ask yourself, like people are always saying, speak truth to power. Mm. And I, when I'm dealing with my high school students, they love saying, I'm going to speak truth to power. But where I start them with is, you have to speak truth to self first. You have to examine your perspectives, the way that you are viewing the world, the way that you are engaging, before you can even think of speaking truth to what we call power. Because the true power is inside, right? So when I say speak truth to self, that's really what I'm talking about. Especially, and just like you're nodding right now, my high school kids always get it. They always get it. I have never had anyone confused by those levels of discourse. So I appreciate, like, not everyone would be willing to talk about I was a cancer survivor, you know? It, but we need that level of vulnerability now. So I'm just going to, I'm going to, let you know, I appreciate that level of discourse. I yeah, think, I it's definitely deepened my human connection to others by allowing myself to be a little bit more vulnerable. And I can think of um, not only has it deepened my connection, but it's allowed me to to move from something that was really scary and a mm-hmm. really, really hard time in life to helping others and to using that life experience to benefit, um, in particular, women. I had breast cancer, and so um, that's more prevalent in women. And so it's it's brought others close to me to c- go alongside them in their life journey, which is an aspect of empathy as well. So, well, there's so, pain. Yeah, through, yeah. We learn through the pain. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I want to pause. This is a little bit of out of sequence, but you wrote a book about mm. your own journey and going back to journey. So why don't you talk a little bit about your, a little bit about the journey and why you decided to do the writing that you did and then um, share, uh, you know, I could share Um, a few things about reading your book too. Well, the book is, it's titled Road of Ash and Dust, Awakening of a Soul in Africa. That's the title of the book. But I, and I do want to talk about it, but I'm an author. (laughs) <laughs> so crossing paths with someone who's actually read the book is exciting for authors. So if I can just ask you, um, is what stands out most in your reading of the manuscript? So many things. The first thing, um, I don't love to fly, although I've kind of trained myself to fly. And so in your opening couple of chapters, there's the, the imagery that goes with your long flight to Africa and all mm-hmm. the thinking you were doing and the discomfort, just the physical discomfort that goes yeah. with it, as well as the thinking that you were doing and this journey that you you were entering into. That realization that I was crossing the Atlantic in the opposite direction yes. of my ancestors who had come here over 240 years ago. Yes. That, that, was, that, was, 
that was a disso- disassociating moment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and to be so yeah. mindful and so aware yeah. um, that you couldn't sleep, that you were thinking about all these things. I um, I have really strong imagery of the community that you described and mm-hmm. really like the, the interactions of people, adults and children, and the care for one another, and the physical space. Like you took it, your book take took me to a place um, that I really could create what community looked like in the places that you went. I appreciate that. Yeah, and also um, going for your Cora lessons, and I just could <laughs> you know music. see the kind of parade to the place where you would take your lessons to learn right. the craft of playing the Cora, which is something that is part of what you do now. 30 years. Yeah. I've been yeah. playing for more than 30 years. Yeah. I, I'll i tell you this. One of my reasons for writing the book, one of the main reasons for writing the book, was because being a black man, I'm from here. Being a black man in this society, I have grown up witnessing the changes, the tumultuousness, the attacks on... Per- I've grown up as a black man in this society, so there are things that I haven't been able to avoid. That being said, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to give voice to many who don't have that voice. Like, you can find a plethora of books written by um, politicians, athletes, black athletes, um, comedians, um, entertainment personalities, rappers, you name it. You can find a lot of books that are either written or ghostwritten for them. But the voice of the voice of that black man who doesn't sit at the pinnacle of a political career or an entertainment or who is just a voice of someone who has grown up here. I wanted to have a nuanced interpretation of what it means to be a black man in this society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people were warning me, they said, no one's going to read that book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But people are reading it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason why I wanted to do that is because I still remember, even though I'm an older man now, I still remember being a child and sitting in those classrooms and having the experiences that I was having coming up through public schools. And that journey toward identity, Mm. constantly trying to discover who am I, who am I, and not having society not quite offering you opportunities to to answer that because of the stereotypes and because so many things that are put on us. So I wanted to put something out for the voices of those who are more like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the main reason for that. I mean, so I've named some really um, great images. I also think about um, the doorway of no return. Oh, that is a favorite And the for description a lot of and the, the words that you use and the way that you took us to that place. Um, and the connections that I made in reading it and thinking about white supremacy and white fragility and how we as white people in society many times want to say, I'm not racist, or I'm not, but we're not willing to go way back, mm-hmm. way back and study where things began to make society a and place of that is what racist thought. That's what we have to do. That is it. Look, 
because a white person isn't racist doesn't mean white people are not racist. I take a, a stance, one of my favorite writers was James Baldwin, and he used to say, um, color is not a personal reality, it's a political reality. And I, I expound on that quite a bit when I'm talking, especially to teachers when we get into these discussions on white supremacy and race, because that whole point of the doorway of no return was something I had dreamed of. I never knew. Being born here, growing up down south, you know, I never knew that I would take that journey someday. But I fantasized about this doorway. And for, I guess a lot of people, I don't know whether they know or not. Do they have to read the book now, too? Well, okay. That, <laughs> they need to read the book. Mm-hmm. But the doorway of no return in, in Dakar, Senegal, is on an island off of the coast of Dakar. And on this island, there's a mansion. It's a small, but at the bottom of it are the dwellings where they took men, women, children, and they even have a cell for infants, a cell for infants. And I had read about this when I was, when I was younger. So I decided if I can ever get to that island, it's called Gore, I'm going to walk into that space because the doorway of no return is the doorway that the enslaved human beings walked out of. It was their last touch to Africa. And I made a promise to myself if I ever made it to Gori, somehow, some way, I would not enter through the front door of that space. I would enter from the water and I would come back through that doorway because for me it was a spiritual ascendance that spirit does not die. That even if my ancestors physically were not able to return, I, the embodiment of their gifts of who, uh, their, their lineage, my heritage, I could walk back through that door. So that was my main reason for doing it. It was a, a spiritual statement. And, and oddly enough, a lot of people have an affinity for that, tra- that chapter, and I'm talking about that more than anything else. In fact... <laughs> You just reminded me of something. I, I recently, last, late last year, I was in Senegal. I had gone back. I was touring schools. The government had invited me to tour schools there. And I made it back there to Gore again. And the question I kept getting everywhere I went was about that part of the book. Hmm. What did they ask? They wanted, it, it's a strange juxtaposition of realities because Many of the students wanted to ask you, as a black American, why did you feel like you could come back here? Because there was a disconnect of identity. And I spent a lot of time explaining that their ancestors were taken from Africa. And I know this sounds simplistic to those of us who know a little bit about history, but I spent time explaining their ancestors were taken from Africa. Those ancestors who were taken to the Americas are my parents great-great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents. And I, I was finding ways to build cohesion between many of mm. the students in the schools, between African-Americans in this country, and their concept of who we are. Because a lot of, they have a very, we've exported a very distorted concept mm. of black Americans, of African-Americans. And part of my work has been to fight that distortion. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, um, and you've, you've just mentioned it, that you travel internationally for study and for presentations and to be with 
all different people around the globe. You speak multiple languages. Um, I just think about your the, the beauty of the storytelling craft of Jalia. And I wonder how you bring that, all of that international um, perspective and language and study into classrooms um, in Long Beach Unified, but we know that it's not the only <laughs> place that you do your work. How does that come into the work that you do? And maybe how has it changed over time as you've changed over time? My, my work, it's, it's purposeful. What I have been doing for the past 30 years is purposeful. M my work initially, when I thought to create the um, idea of becoming a storyteller, it was based partially on cult a cultural understanding of my ancestry and my roots, but it was also based on many of the personalities that I grew up, uh, and they were my heroes. For example, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson toured the world. Brilliant human being. And he toured the world back in the early 1920s, up into the 30s and 40s. And he, he was an inspiration to me. People like him who didn't let the constraints that the society sought to put on black people hold them back. They didn't, didn't allow that, were inspirational to me. Um, women such as Ida B. Wells, right? Reading her works, uh, her struggle against the oppression in this society, her journalism, impeccable, uh, W.B. Du Bois. I mean, I could keep naming, I could just keep naming people. Alex Haley's Roots was a book I read, and I think I was in what we call middle, junior high back then. Mm -hmm. I think we mm -hmm. call it middle school. But when I read Alex Haley's Roots, there was this connection to Africa, and there were these griots. So when I had gone to Africa, one of the main reasons I went was I wanted to learn about that griot tradition. I wanted to learn the, the oral tradition, the music, the storytelling. And when I began to learn it, it was like this huge epiphany went off. And I began to understand why our children, black children, black boys, black girls, struggle in this educational system. And I was so excited to come back and to share and to say, I've got it. I've got the answer. Music isn't just music. Rhythm isn't just rhythm. There's this tradition. You know, I was excited about mm -hmm. that. But I'm going to be honest with you, Jill. When I came back from Africa, no one wanted to hear mm. what I had to say or what I had to give. And I remember Paul Robeson saying, don't limit your world. Your world is as big as you make it. And I started soliciting outside of this country. And the next thing you know, I'm getting asked to go to Poland. I'm getting asked to go to France. And, and I've toured every country in South America. But what wasn't accepted here was welcomed with open arms abroad. So I did a lot of work here. I still, this is my home. I'm never going to give up on home, right? I did a lot of work here, but in order to survive, I had to create an international platform out of necessity. And I think in that platform, what's evolved is now there's a recognition. <laughs> I'm so much older mm, now. Mm. I, wish that, I wish it had been so much more acceptance 30 years ago. Mm. But there's more of an awakening. And the awakening did not start with the death of George Floyd. The awakening started 
decades ago. Mm -hmm. And it has been a protracted struggle to get to where we are today. And I mean, I would like to say, you know, I created, I did, but it's not so much about me as it is about my having centered children in my platform. So everything I do, every, every move I make, everything I read, every, all of the studying, all of the traveling, is to make sure that our children know who they are. Because once you know who you are, you know, then that unearths your potential. Knowing who you are, part of that is history. I'm sorry, you ask a storyteller a question, and I just went on and no, on. But you, like understand, it, I'm just, you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely. And I, I, um, I'm so glad that you recounted just the decades of work, because the work that we're involved in together oh. in this community, that you've done individually, it did locally. Not start, but Jill, it did not start yesterday. It did not start. A lot of... I'm, I'm hearing a lot of conversations from people all over about, well, now there's momentum. Well, now there's energy behind it. Well, now people are ready to listen. We've been having this conversation for 20 years. And I'm glad in your story that you told about your work that that sense of persistence um, and knowing that some things that are as, not some things, things that are as complex as the topic that we're talking about they don't get solved quickly. Mm -mm. They and they get solved over time with hands locked together, with mm -hmm. really raw conversations that people are willing to feel uncomfortable for a long time. There's to, a song yeah. that I used to hear my great grand my great grandfather lived to be 110. And I used to spend a lot of time with him. There's a song he used to sing, uh, Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a part of the song that says, the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. Mm. And that eyes on the prize is, for me, has been centering myself around making sure that our children recognize who they are. Mm -hmm. But it's, I, I don't look to win during my lifetime. Mm -hmm. But what I do look to is to at least move the needle on the conversation or what we've been doing. And I do look to create sort of a legacy that I inherited from others. So it's my responsibility to leave it for those who come up behind mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. I share a similar belief, which brings me to I want to ask you a few questions. Um, mm -hmm. Again, your work in schools is not new, um, but we, we sought a partnership, you and I, last summer. Yeah. We were preparing to, to launch some new levels of work. So again, a focus on equity in Long Beach Unified isn't new either. It's been decades of work. Um, but last summer was a special time. It was a moment of really upping the questions that we were asking ourselves mm -hmm. and thinking about story. And so you helped to launch a year of um, the question about people's stories and, and really thinking about how stories and knowing each other's stories impact each other. So I'm, I'm back in that room, which <laughs> I wish we could go back to the summer of 2019 oh because yeah. those were great days and also life was simpler in certain Much. ways. Um, but I think back to that time and just the ways that you um, 
quickly helped us to build trust in a room. We heard from voices. At that time, it was principals and assistant principals in the Mm -hmm. district. We heard from voices that had never spoken in front of 100 people. And in a room of 100 people, we were going there in terms of of conversations. Um, What do you remember about being in (laughs) in the community room at Browning High School helping us to to launch our year? With over 100 principals. It was the leadership Institute, and I remember, I remember when you approached me about it, it. We wanted to center ourselves around a discussion of racism, white supremacy, uh, inequity, and how to build equity, which is a broad, yes, <laughs> and a, a tough conversation to have. So, I remember thinking, how am I going to have that conversation with a hundred people? And what I came up with was. I've got to be honest. I've got to be vulnerable. I've got to lay it on the line in front of these people so that they understand that I am not here as a keynote, right? I am not, I am here as a part of this community who desperately wants to see this educational system transformed into something that serves all children. So I, 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 it was, it was a little scary for me. But vulnerability was the key. So when I did uh, begin the conversation in the room, you know I use music. You know I use the storytelling. But the methodology behind using music is to get people to relax. There's even brain science behind how the endorphins flow when we listen to music, right? So once they're relaxed, I chose what story I wanted, what words I wanted to share in that moment. And when everyone is calm, they're open. And I felt safe. Once I felt safe to be vulnerable, I started to share my story. But I'm not only, it has to be bi-directional for me. So I wanted to allow time for them to also speak. And I let their questions, once I let them know who I was, and what my expectations were, and what my history was. I let their questions guide the way. And it's like walking a tightrope a lot of times. But for those of us who have been around a while, it's one that we walk well. So allowing their questions and making it a safe space for them to ask those questions, because I think the problem we get into is when people don't feel safe in expressing themselves, then they don't. But the Leadership Institute was a pivotal moment of coming home for me, Mm. of coming home. That's what it felt like for me. Uh, I'm not, I've spoken to quite a few of the principals since then. I love the input I get. In some ways, I'm not gonna lie, it fed my ego. (laughs) (laughs) It fed my ego. But overall, being able to continue those conversations mm-hmm. past the day of the Leadership Institute yes. was important to me. Yeah, I'm glad you said that too, because those two days were just the beginning. And so you, um, you know, you've been out in many schools since then until we had to close schools on March 13th. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you to talk about that in a moment. I also think about at that institute, um, I told, not as well as you can tell a story, but I told about the story of the Maasai tribe and the mm-hmm. question that the elders use to gauge the health of their of their society. And as I understand the story to be mm-hmm. a, a fierce warrior tribe um, that could be intimidating and could, 
But the tenderness of the question that they ask to decide if if all is well is, how are the children? Mm. And that's mm-hmm. both what I understand it to be in the story, a greeting and also a measure of success in society. And so I ask the question of our our principals and assistant principals, can we really answer that all of the children are well? And right now the answer is no. And actually today right. on August 4th, the answer is still no. And so I'm going to keep asking myself that question. How are all of the children? And I'm going to keep asking it of all of us in our school district and community until until we get to a point where the answer is yes. And we have to keep pushing. We have to keep pushing. We are going to hear constantly what is not possible, right? We're going to constantly hear why we cannot do things. So when you make a statement such as, how are all of the children doing? There are people who will push back. Mm-hmm. But you know what? If we do not set our sights on every single child, if we don't set our sights to make sure that every single child in this district is self-actualized and reaches their potential and we put them in a place where they can grow to be who they are meant to become, if we don't at least dream and put energy behind that, then what are we really doing? Mm-hmm. Which is why, This is why I don't debate any longer. I don't have time to debate. I'm too busy working. Yes. <laughs> I'm too busy doing the work. Yes. O- over the decades, there have been a lot of personalities that have come and gone. And when the cameras come on, oh, they come out of the woodwork. But one of the things I learned from my great-grandfather, he had, his, he had a farm. And he would say, you know, if you want to eat, you got to work. Right? I've always kept that at the forefront of my mind, that if I want something to happen, then I've got to put energy and work behind it. So I've always avoided the camera. In fact, this is one of the few times I've actually (laughs) appeared on camera again, because most of my work has been in the schools, with the children, with the teachers. And I haven't sought any attention or for that because I'm doing the work. I'm proud to be doing the work. I know. I had to twist your wrist to get you here, (laughs) but I'm glad you came. Share a few highlights of the year, um, the work that you did with teachers. Specifically in Long Beach, Yeah, share some Long Beach highlights. Just give us a few glimpses at things that really make you proud of the work that you did in this last year with us. There's so much. There is so much. And I hope some of the teachers, the principals, uh, don't mind me calling their names out because I have to give them credit for placing themselves on the line. Uh, Early on, there was uh, Pilar Perocio. Perocio. She is the principal at Bancroft, Bancroft Middle School. And she and I had a conversation, and she wanted to know, like, what could I bring? So we we went all out there. Uh, I did work with every grade level. I did assemblies where I actually performed. And those are entertaining, those are performances, but it's also a time to give me access to the community and build some sort of a relationship. So we did assemblies for every grade level. Then I started visiting classrooms of each grade level. So one day I'd spend the day going from sixth grade classrooms. Another day I would spend the day going to seventh grade classrooms. And another day, eighth grade classrooms. All with objectives in mind of what we wanted to do. And... I was also doing teacher professional development, all centered around creating a discussion 
right? Beginning the discussion on white supremacy, racism, and the effects and harm that those things have. And going into those discussions, I had to steel myself. Because I, as, as a man in half a century, a little over half a century, <laughs> I know what I'm going to be faced with, right? But it was surprising to me how many people were ready to have the discussions. There were so many teachers in some of our sessions. I, I think I went back maybe four or six times. We had some sessions where people were in tears. We had some sessions where, you know, we had to put people back together when they were falling apart because of their own life experiences. We had some sessions where there was a little anger, but we kept the conversation going, even though, because my job is to facilitate that, right? It, they were productive. They were highly productive. And when COVID hit, <laughs> we didn't have the sessions where we went in as much, but we were having the conversation. And what I saw that was happening with the children, with the youth, was that they were being heard in a different way. Mm. And they were expressing that through their actions in school. I had parents coming to me saying, you're that storytelling guy? You know, after school, because that's a, that's a sign of something. When children go home and they're excited to talk about something that happened in school, it lets you know that you're doing something right. So many of the black children, it's, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful when you walk into a class and you see the students and they sit up a little taller, they make eye contact, and you know that you're being effective. So, I mean, that was Bancroft. Uh, she also had a, a, an assistant principal, I think her name is Danette. Danette? Mm -hmm. Danette. Incredible organizer. Uh, she organized a Black History Month event. And I had been performing, and I wanted to take that opportunity for to be invited to sit and to show the children that I could sit in the audience and watch them. So it was in the evening and I went and I observed that. Incredible organizational skills on her behalf. Um, I also worked with uh, elementary, Bixby Elementary. Uh, we started a conversation with the teachers there on the same level and we were moving through before COVID hit, building relationships. Uh, also, I did all the assemblies there as well. And then I would have lunch <laughs> with the children mm. during lunch. We'd go out and have lunch. And that was, um, let me see, I'm trying to, oh my goodness, Browning High School. Mm. Uh, Dr. Felicia yeah, Anderson. Anderson. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give some credit to her because she called me knowing what a griot was. Mm. And she said, I want you to come to my high school. I'm going to gather all of the students, two different, two different sessions, and we're going to put them in a circle, and I'm going to put you in the middle of the circle, and I want you to do what you do. I said, are you sure? <laughs> she trusted me. Mm -hmm. And that was a, 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 an amazing thing. Once again, we had students who were in tears and identifying and growing, and some, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a struggle but that level of vulnerability that I have to bring to the table, people are offering it back. 
I don't know if I'm answering your question quite clearly because it's not a not a thing. Neat, it's, it's not, not a package. A neat, right. No, it's not no. a neat package thing. It's a human experience that you connect people to the past. Exactly. You connect children to one another. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to forget Dr. Savio out in Avalon. She was in mm-hmm. Avalon. Mm-hmm. I went to Avalon and I had some incredible experiences with the high school students there, elementary also. There are so many people, and I know I'm not naming them all, but it's been an incredible journey. Well, I um, have a couple more things I want to ask you, but just to thank you, I watched on social media after our schools closed how often you were connecting with staff and, and students from your own sheltering in place and really making time to continue the work. Um, because that's who you are as a member of this community, but it made a huge difference. I did not say no to anyone who called, and that's a part of my legacy. If if someone calls, you make it happen. So there was a lot of need when that hit, and if I'm in a position to be able to serve, then I'm going to serve. Well, and, and you didn't just ask them, how are you, and accept mm. fine. You asked them, how are you feeling? Mm. What's happening for you? You know, what's, what's going on inside of your, your body? What are you thinking about? Right. There's a policy with children. Um, and I used, uh, in working with children, there's a, we used to use a developmental psychologist from the 70s, his name is Amos Wilson, I'm trying to remember his name. And he specialized in the developmental psychology of black children. And I remember I used to attend his lectures. Oh, I'm old. <laughs> but I would attend some of his lectures when he would come here to California. And one of the things he used to say is, when you hug a child, let them release first. And that, when I was trying to be of service when the pandemic hit, that's really what I was doing in the conversations with children, in the conversations with adults, is I wasn't hanging up until they were ready to be let go. It's that, it's that virtual hug, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want. Mm-hmm. But people will let you know when okay. you've satiated their thirst. So in those conversations, in those storytelling sessions, in those moments, um, I made sure, because I had the time, not to try to run away or um, look at the watch too much. But yeah, that was important to me. Well, I've, I've personally experienced that in you um, in times of community unrest, in times of um, the murder of George Floyd. I knew that you were someone who I could come to and you have been someone consistently. So I can come and say, here's what I'm thinking about. Can you help me work this out? Please give me your perspective. And I just have so appreciated that wise counsel, mm. your calm spirit, your ability to just um, to listen, even as I've worked things out in my own thinking um, by talking to you. And that's something that I, I know you offer to a lot of people, but I'm personally thankful for that. I the way that I feel, and I'm of an age now where I feel people. I don't listen to what people tell me. I feel people. And I felt a sincerity in you. And this was way before you became superintendent, which is, you know. <laughs> congratulations on that, by the yes, way. I'm sorry. I, we should have opened with congratulations. No. But there are people in this world, when you've traveled this world enough, 
you begin to have experiences where you feel the type of human beings they are. And you don't need a discussion. You don't need them to tell you. People demonstrate who they are. And I think there's a certain level of resonance that I have with human beings who I feel are sincerely willing to be in the trenches. And uh, I'm an honest human being. Mm. And if you were not that person, I have no problem telling you. Uh, I would not be here with you right now if you were not that human being. So I just I like to believe that there are those of us who are ready to roll up our sleeves and to get this work done, and we've already been doing it, and we're going to continue it. There is a paradigm shift that is going to happen whether we want it or not. Can I, can I just give you an example of mm-hmm, something? Because mm-hmm. you talked about George Floyd, and I, I feel a little pain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not a little pain, I feel a lot yeah. of pain. The, I have had a lot of George Floyds in my mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. Going back to my childhood, all the way up through now, I've had a lot of George Floyds in my life. I mean, we can go back before Emmett Till. I have had family members personally who have been lynched, mm-hmm. and they're a part of my family history. My grandmother was forced to watch a lynching of her favorite uncle. So uh, the reason why I'm putting this forth is because I think people need to understand where we're coming from. So the reason why I'm saying this is it's not as simple as what I want or what you want. It's so much more complex than that. So having in my psyche so many of these George Floyds, and for example, in 1990, I... I, sometimes I still dream about this young woman, Latasha Harlins. Mm. She was a student in 1990 who was shot and killed um, purchasing some juice at a local store. A lot of people have forgotten her name. I have not. So all of these images that I live with, all of these people who are no longer here, I have an obligation, because I'm still here, to make sure that I live their legacy, that their names are not forgotten, that the children who are coming up now, right, recognize the sanctity of living and life. So I didn't mean to take a step, but when mm-hmm. you mentioned George Floyd, it's, it's, it's difficult for yeah. me. It's, it's difficult. Um, I just need a second. Yeah, yeah. Take a second. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But so, I so I mean, that. that leads me to, I guess, my my last question for today, which I wish we had hours, is just <laughs> thinking about. You've seen my journey over time mm-hmm. as a teacher and a leader in the school district, and you're with me during a really important week as I kick off this job of being superintendent. So I'd just love for you to offer any advice that you have for me around my work. <laughs> um, and then if, if you have a story, um, a, a story that you'd love to tell to, to lead us to closure, uh, that would be great. I'm laughing because you <laughs> remind me of um, when I was young, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali were friends. And a reporter once asked Malcolm X, he, he said, um, what advice do you give 
Muhammad Ali, when you are together. And Malcolm said, I don't give advice. He said, I counsel, mm. but I also seek counsel. He said, our relationship is a relationship of equality. He said, so he explained that his, when he would speak to Muhammad Ali, they spoke as equals. I have no advice for you. What counsel but, <laughs> do you have? Let me change my question. I would tell you uh, to suffer the slings and the arrows nobly and understand that your journey, your path, you are on it and it is a part of your purpose. And if I were going to just leave you with something before, and I know you want me to share a story, so I'll share a story, but if I were going to leave you with one thing, I mean, Music always comes to mind, you know. On my way here uh, on the radio, there's a song by Marvin Gaye that came on, um, Save the Children. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's not one of his more popular songs. I think it was a B-side song, but I grew up hearing that song. And there's a refrain in the song that he continues to ask over and over, and it's, who really cares? Who really cares about our children. So I would say on your journey, that's something that I would love for you to keep. And you've already done it, but how's that? Look, the one thing you did right was the day you started to fight. Mm. Keep your eyes on the prize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all I would say with you if I'm counseling you. Thank you for your wise counsel. <laughs> A story. A story. Um, I had thought of a story that I use a lot when I travel internationally. Actually, it's a story in French, and I've never told it in English. But while we were talking, I did, something else came to mind. So when I was young, uh, starting first grade, it was late 1960s, I think. It was maybe two years after Martin Luther King had been killed, 69, 70, I was six years old. And we lived in a, a housing project in central Texas that was affectionately called The Bricks. The Bricks. And we went to a school, the school was called East Ward, and it was during that period of integration, right? So everything was new still, even though Brown v. Board occurred in 1955 in Texas, it was still new, right? So we would go to this school from what they call the projects, the bricks, in Killeen, Central Texas, and we would walk to school. And I remember the early first weeks of school, you know, you're a student, you're excited, and it was first grade, so now I was a big kid. <laughs> I was a big kid. And I remember our teacher announced we're going to have a competition, an ice cream party. I remember this like it was yesterday. Mm. We're going to have an ice cream party. So whoever brings the most family members back to school night, that classroom will have an ice cream party. So six years old, ice cream, that's all you have to say. <laughs> so I went home and I ran home and I went to the bricks and I talked to my grandma and I told my grandma, you got to come to school that night. 
ice cream party, you know, mm-hmm. and I, my mother and my uncles, and I'm telling all of them. And I, I remember running out of the house and I ran like a few doors down and I was like, Auntie Leslie, you got to come to the, I'm going to get an ice cream party back school night. I was like, Uncle Joe. And I'm running from place to place to place, home to home to home. And that night, the back to school night, there were over 30 to 40 people who showed up for that six-year-old me. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was about ice cream. Mm-hmm. But now, it's about something so much more. And the incredible thing now is out of that 30 to 40 people, only five of them were related to me by blood. And the six-year-old me did not make the distinction or did not understand that these people were not my blood relations. These people showed up for me. Something missing in our dialogue today is our capacity to surround these children with that level of love and care. You know, I said projects, poverty wasn't a part of my life growing up, this poverty that, not that I understood, because for 30 people to show up for you, there is a richness Mm -hmm. in that. I want to move us in that direction. I'm going to do whatever it takes to build this community here in Long Beach so that we are showing up for our children. Mm. Baba, thank you. Thank you for showing up for our kids and helping us to answer that question better. How are all the children? We're so grateful. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you and to have you as such a good partner to the work that we do and just that you live and work in our community. So we'll keep on. And I appreciate you being with me this week. I appreciate you, Jill. I appreciate you. I'm sorry, Dr. Baker. Be well. Thank you for joining us. If you like this podcast or are interested in future episodes, please subscribe to our LBUSD YouTube channel at lbschools.net slash YouTube and or rate us on Apple Podcasts to help others find our show. To learn more about the amazing work of Baba the Storyteller, check out his website at www.babathestoryteller.com. You can also follow Dr. Baker on Twitter at jbaker000, that's three zeros, or on Instagram at leadinginlbusd. We look forward to sharing the story of more individuals across our community in the future.